0: Welcome to Runs Podcast, episode number forty-nine. This is your host Suman Silwal. I look
1: at Boston as it was a picture of reward. A lot of times, people come here to run really hard and really
0: fast, and they end up crashing, burning. Visit Embruns.coms to listen to our previous podcast shows, links to our social media channels, and more. I would like to welcome Dave McGillery to Runs Podcast. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I know you from from many many different directions. You are. The- one of the biggest name that you that you out there in the running community, you're the race director of Boston Marathon, running in Boston for many, many years. Uh, but uh, tell us about how did you get started running?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, for everyone, they have um, goals in life and objectives in mind when I was a young boy, it was to be a professional athlete. But because I was short in stature, I was always the last one from the, from the team, or I was always the last one picked when my friends fucked up the side. So by default, I started running because nobody, you can't get caught running, you just go out and run. And I just started uh, setting goals in, in, in following my passion for running. And I ran my first Boston Marathon uh, in 1973 when I was 18 years old, and I have run the race every year since. So this year will be my 45th consecutive uh, run of the Boston Marathon. And then in 1978, it really got started when I decided I wanted to run across the United States for the Jimmy Fund here in Boston, which is the fundraising arm of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So it was like the first time somebody combined running with um, raising money for cancer research. So I ran from Medford, Oregon to my hometown of Medford, Mass. The distance of three thousand four hundred and fifty two miles and I did it in eighty days, the average about forty five miles a day, some days running well over fifty miles a day and I ended up finishing that run in Fenway Park in front of thirty five thousand people and raising some good money. And then when I finished it I decided I wanted to open up an athletic footwear and clothing store in my hometown, which I did and then I started putting on events to promote the store and realized I like putting on events more than shoes on people's feet. And um, One thing led to another, and I just kept on putting on events, and two events turned to five events, turned to 10 events, turned to 30 events, and the rest, as they say, is history. I've produced over a 1,000 events all over the world in the last 35 years. You know, that's sort of how I got involved in the event management business, but I continued to run and run the marathon and do a lot of triathlons. did the Ironman Triathlon in Hawaii uh, nine times, and I ran up the east coast of America with a fellow by the name of Bob Boyle, pioneer of wheelchair racing in America. But he pushed a wheelchair, and I ran next to him 1,522 miles up the entire East Coast. And, and I just continually set these personal goals. When I was 12, I ran 12 miles my 12th birthday, 13, 13 miles, 14, 14 miles. I kept doing that for 50 years straight. I'm 62 now, and I turned 63 in August. So God so willing, I'll be able to run 63 miles my
0: 63rd birthday. What motivates you to do whatever you're doing for the last 45 odd years or more?
1: What it ends up doing more than anything, I mean, it, when I was younger, it was more the athletic sport competition side of it. You know, I was had a competitive nature like like most, like a lot of people, and I wanted to get out there and run hard and fast and place high and try to win some races, and, and now it's very different as you get older. Um, you might be competitive in your age group, but you're not going to be running up front in the race anymore but um it's all about setting realistic goals and again years ago it was very competitive now it's it's more participatory when people used to ask me what I did for a living I used to sort of mumble that I was a race director because it was like well what do you do you know what does a race director do put a put a chalk mark in the road and line people people up and yell go and that's about it and um but now when people, there's so many people doing it now and they're doing it for so many different causes that when people ask me what I do for a living, I say, I help raise the level of self-esteem and self-confidence of tens of thousands of people in America. And that's how I truly look at it is mm-hmm. that, you know, as an event director, I'm able to create something for someone to use as a magnet or a target to go after and, um, you know, set it as a goal and work hard and toe the starting line and run the course across the finish line and get the medal and go home feeling good about yourself. And there's no greater reward than to feel that you've changed someone's life or made them, like I said, feel good about themselves. And that's why I do what I do, too. You know, for me, I go back to my roots as being somebody who wants to be athletic, want to continue to be athletic. Um, so I want to challenge myself in different ways. Um, but I always I always say you have to earn the right to do it. You can't just recklessly say I'm going to go do something when you really have no business to say that. Um, so I'm very careful before I announce that I'm going to do something. I want to make sure that you know, I've done a little research, I've done some some of the work, some of the training. I feel like okay, I feel confident I can do this. I'm going to announce that I'm going to attempt to do such and such, and and then I work really hard at it and go out and accomplish it. So. Um, what motivates me is just the feeling of um you know raising that raising that level of self esteem because at the end of the day in my opinion that's the most important thing in a person's life you can't accomplish anything unless you feel good about yourself so it's important to have some goals and accomplish them and you get that immediate gratification and and that's a springboard for everything else you do in life
0: definitely having a goal uh, is a big part of being, a, being at the Boston Marathon, um, I had my goals and dreams to come to Boston and accomplish, uh, and after what, 37 or 38 marathons. And um, talking about Boston, uh, how did you uh, get involved with the Boston Marathon? Yeah. Um, well, back in
1: 1987, there was an incident at the start where there was a minor you know, wheelchair accident. Uh, some of the chairs just toppled over, and there was some other things that happen at the starting line and the Black Hunt Athletic Association said that we we can't have these things happen again. We need to bring someone in that's paying a little bit more attention to this area and, and make sure they correct it and make sure that it never happens again. So I had just started my business and I heard about the sort of coordinating coordinator position available at the start and I sort of applied for it and they selected me and finally I and cleaned up the start that year, and then um, one thing led to another, and I started organizing the entire start, and then I took on the course, and then the finish, and so I ended up sort of directing pretty much the whole event from a logistical operational uh, perspective. And I was um, I was actually named race director in 2001. I've been the race director ever since. So this will be my 30th year in all different capacities of uh, being involved on in the um, you know the management side of Boston, so 30
0: years directing and 45 years running. Wow, that's a long time. Along the same line, yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> question for you, I mean, How how Boston and the Boston Marathon has changed uh, over your lifetime?
1: Well, I mean, the biggest change certainly has been the fact that you know the race has grown in popularity as well as you know the number of participants in the race. I mean, that alone is a game changer. In terms of how you manage the event, um, you know, obviously it's the oldest running marathon uh, in the world. It has tradition, has history, you know, that no other race can claim, and so that's one of the major draws of the race: is its traditions and its history, going way back to ni- 1897. I think it has a, it's a unique course, point to point, starting out in the rural areas of, uh, you know. Western part of the state, uh, Hopkinton, and then working its way into downtown Boston, has a lot of historical locations, Wells College or Hopkirk Hill, Chemmore Square. Um, so brings a lot of character in that sense. It has, you know, almost a million spectators along the course. It has, um, laid claim to sort of hosting some of the greatest marathoners of all time around the world. And it has its qualifying standards now. So people look at Boston as the holy grail, uh, the promised land, the place to get to, you know, for, for, for not just the elites, but for, for everybody. You know, it's, it's the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Kentucky Derby, the Tour de France, all rolled into one of our sports. So it's good to have one race that, mm. that people can point to and say, Hey, you know, even at my age, 40 or 50 or 60 or 70, my goal is to qualify. For the Boston Marathon, so we're very unique in that aspect. On the other side, you know, we also understand the concept of giving back, so philanthropy is also important. So there's a delicate balance between how many qualifiers we let in and how many people we let in who are raising money for worthwhile causes. And we think we got the right percentage and try to maintain that from year to year. So there's a lot of a lot of good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fast race up front, but at the same time, we have we have people who. You know, who uh, don't do this for a living, but works just as hard, if not harder, than the elites to get here. So we have a responsibility and obligation to put on a good, a good show and produce a good product for them too. So for me, um, I'm very lucky in that I'm able to see it from both sides. As uh, someone on the management side, but when I took over the job in 1988, I recall standing at the finish line and everyone was crossing the finish line and. I had run the race 15 years in a row, and I felt really awful, frankly, because everyone was running it, finishing, in the, and I wasn't running. So I decided, "The heck with this," and I went back out to the start later on that night and ran the whole course myself. So I finished last, course, and I've done it that way for the last 29 years. So I've run this course when everyone else is done. I'm out there just kind of bringing it up the rear and uh, running it myself. So I. I'm able to maintain that whole importance of being an athlete myself and not just hanging up my running shoes so I can direct it. I'm able, luckily for me, in a very unique situation that I'm able to do both.
0: When you run as a last uh, runner, uh, do you run with other people nowadays or do you invite people? When I when I first started
1: doing it, I was pretty much alone, um, but then it, it sort of caught on a little bit. People know that I'm doing it, so I do get requests. By some people who aren't running in the race during the day, if they could come run with me at night. Um, I have to keep it to a short, small, minimum amount of people only because, you know, it's it's in the dark and there's, you know, no aid out there. You're on your own. So I just don't want anyone to get hurt and I don't want to, you know, cause a big scene. I'm trying to, it's a very personal thing and I'm trying to keep a low profile and just run through the course and get it done. But I do usually have two or three or four friends that run with me on, each, on a year-to-year basis, um, which is helpful because, for me, it's almost a calm after the storm, it gives me an opportunity to reflect on the day, so I'm already critiquing what happened throughout the day because I saw it all and sort of taking mental notes about what we would do next year to change things and make them better and improve
0: things, so and
1: it's, it's a great way to sort of end,
0: you know, a long day. Definitely, that sounds like a great way to reflect. What your achievement itself? So yeah, moving on to some of the question um, that I that I want to ask, or one one other question I was requested to ask. Uh, something you brought up a minute ago: qualify runner versus charity runners. Uh, so the Boston always going to have a charity running part of it?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we're raising collectively with John Hancock, our principal sponsor, and other uh, others. We're, we're collectively we're raising over thirty million dollars. Um, so now the charities that are part of our official program, you know, they're depending on those those dollars to come in. They've developed programs, they've hired people um, because of the Boston Marathon. So I don't see in my lifetime you know any of that going away. Um, our ratio is typically around eighty eighty one percent qualifiers and twenty percent non qualifiers. Um, but a case can be made that the people who are raising all that money are working just as hard, if not harder than the qualifiers. So, um, you know, everybody has to sort of do something to get in the game. Some people just have to run fast, and other people have to be passionate about a specific cause and work really hard to raise the money, but also train just as hard as a qualified runner. And, you know, we require that everyone be able to run, you know, no slower than six hours. So we're, we're not just taking
0: anybody in the race. We, we, Everybody still has to earn the right to toe the starting line. I know some of my friends there, they're a qualified runner, but they still sign up with a charity so they can raise money for for a good cause. Exactly. Yep. You, you talked about this a minute ago about changing from year to year. How, how much a marathon like Boston changes from year to year?
1: Um, you know, there's that adage, if it's not broken, don't fix it. We don't look for ways to fix something that works. Um, so lucky for us, we have a a, a well oiled machine so um so they've perfected you know their area of expertise you know and their their discipline um, with the event so knock on wood and lucky for us, most areas go off fairly fairly well and but we're also in a unique position because of that that we can take pieces of it and put it under a microscope and really drill it down and set the standard. The operational standard in my case in the industry, whether it's uh, how we handle water stations or how we deal with lead vehicles on the course or or, um, how we set runners off in waves and corrals and pulse stops or whatever it might be. So we're lucky that we can try some new things that might end up growing so well that it becomes a new industry standard. The course is the course, the field size is the field size. So there's many, many things that don't change at all but that's one of the assets of, of the event too the fact that you know what you get coming in um if you've done it before then pretty familiar with it and you can improve upon your performance knowing that okay i know how this works now it's just a matter of focusing a little bit more and working a little harder and i'm going to get a better result if we keep changing things around then it's like a new event all over again but that doesn't mean we're afraid to change we're not, and. That we don't constantly enhance things and and um, try to try to make them better or add new things to the overall experience. The biggest thing that affects, again, an event, in my opinion, is just the overall field size. And so, if you started, you know, with 10,000 people, and then you went to 15, then you went to 20, then you went to 25, you went to 30, you went to, 30, you went to 35, you started, it kept on growing like that. Then things have to change. You have to find more space. You have to get more time. Uh, you need more resources, um, you need more people. but with our race, you know, it's the same field size from year to year. So not a lot of that changes. Again, we're very lucky that
0: we're able to be in that position. Will the qualifying time change, uh, some, because the, with the popularity of the race, uh, growing, will it change anytime?
1: You know, we look at that from year to year. Um, the main reason qualifying times were instituted 30 years ago or so, was basically to control the field size. Um, at that time, the race was growing in popularity, and the folks who were managing the race back then were like, "I don't know if that we can handle this. We need to set up some kind of standard so that we can control how many people get into this thing." And that's when those standards of whatever it was back then—I think four hours, whatever it was at the time—and then those standards were uh, regularly adjusted based on, you know, how many. How many people you wanted to let in um, and then but then there came a time when you know the race wasn't actually filling, you know, and that we we actually we actually had more space than we had participants, you know interestingly, and then the year, I think it was two thousand and seven or eight when we sold out at record pace um, you know in eight hours and three minutes, and I recall getting phone calls from my peers in the industry, other race sort of congratulating me had nothing to do with it. And then saying, uh, well, you must feel great about this. And I'm like, feel great about it. I feel awful. Like I'm hiding under my bed here because so many people got turned away because they didn't know that it was going to sell out that fast. So we said we have to do something to fix this. Um, so we did lower the standards by about five minutes. And we changed the registration procedure based on how much time people tested their qualifying time by. So we recognize that what our objective was is that we're about the pursuit of athletic excellence. We're about excellence. Not every race is. race. A lot of other races just let anyone in who wants in. But ours is different, and that's okay. And so basically people apply, and then we rank them based on how much they tested their qualifying time by. And then once we fill, we fill. And unfortunately, we have to turn away those who didn't make the cut. So now we're getting in the three, 4,000 range of people who qualify don't make the cut. So for me, that bothers um I don't personally like the fact that somebody works real hard, runs in a race a year ago, crosses the finish line, looks at the clock, and starts yelling and screaming, you know, that they qualified for the Boston Marathon and they're so excited. And then six months, a year later, they apply, and unfortunately, they didn't make the cut. So the only way, well, one of the ways that you can prevent that from happening is to squeeze the qualifying times even more so that everybody that does qualify ultimately gets in. People won't be happy with that either, but generally speaking, we're doing it by default because you're not getting in anyway. So it's, it's more a matter of um, trying to look at a couple of years worth of data and then making a decision. So that's sort of where we are right now. I mean, we're not gonna, And if you do change the standards, it's going to be like a, a two-, three-year project because we're not going to like, okay, this year's race is over. We're going to change the standards for next year. We can't do that. It has to be more phased in over a period of time.
0: Gotcha. you. Uh, talk about the uh, 2013 Boston Marathon. Our running world changed <laughs> that day, since that day. How much has it changed for you uh, since that 2013?
1: Well, we all know that it, it was a horrific day, and... Um, a lot of people were hurt, a lot of people were impacted. Um, on the flip side, if one were to look at not the positive side of something like that because there's nothing positive about that, but just trying to process it, you know we were very fortunate that it happened where it happened in the sense of right near our major medical facility where all that medical personnel was like right there, and they saved lives. A lot more people could have died, a lot more people. Uh, might not have been able to be transported in time and and saved. So, you know, obviously right after that we had to just, you know, sort of support the victims and um and just process it all and recover from it emotionally. And then and then we had to decide what two, 2014 was going to look like. Because instead of the world saying, "I'm not going there, that's too dangerous," they said just the opposite. The world wanted to come to Boston now, and we can't accept the world. You know, we can only handle so many. So we made the conscientious decision to increase the field size by 9,000, another wave, which is a lot for this course. So a lot of changes had to be made to ensure that this would never happen again, um, to just protect the runners, the volunteers, spectators, you know, public safety came in and did what they had to do. And and unfortunately, the, the downside to all that is that there's a lot of inconveniences that were had to be dealt with. You know, you can't bring gear bags out to the start, so that means whatever you, whatever you wore out to the start, you had to either run in or discard um, things like that. Um, everybody had to go through checkpoints and go through screening. Um, all that's still in place. All that happens today. Um, you know, knock on wood that you know we've been sort of incident-free in the last three years, but it's what's going on in, in the world? We, we just can't go back in our heels and say, "Okay, we're, we're fine again." Um, it's not going to work. Um, so it has changed. It's a, it, it's a new normal. Um, I don't think it's damp at the spirits of anybody. Um, a little bit more work to do on the backside that most people don't see. And then when they show up, I, I, you know, there is a presence of, of public safety, but I don't think it's intimidating. It's if anything, it's like, okay, they're there. I'm safe. So people go about their business and the race goes off. And, uh, I mean, 2014 was epic. Um, having an American win, Neb, and, and, uh, having all those people out on the course and we will not be denied and holding the signs. And it just, it was just, uh, ordinary year. We'll, we'll never see again. So
0: Boston strong. You know, we still use that.
1: Yeah. Right, yes. and you know that
0: that, that basically yeah.
1: that moniker is really about again uh, perseverance and and um again not not being denied your you know your your freedom that um you know you can you can you could put up a roadblock but we're going around it you know we're we're carrying on um the support of the you know, the running community after that was just inspiring. You know, they felt personally attacked. Um, Even though it happened in one location, the whole running community felt that this was um an attack on them too. Yeah. And that um they were going to recover from it themselves and come back and show a level of solidarity that you've never seen before. And it continues.
0: Definitely. And it has to continue because... You know, whatever thing going in the world, it, it, we have to stay right. together. So yep. yeah. Um, next, uh, next question. Some of the fun question I was going to ask you is um, the permanent Boston finishing line, and mm-hmm. some of the, <laughs> uh, some of the some of the things we don't know about, a little bit of things, of fact about Boston that we that we runners as we come every year that we don't know that you can share with us. Um,
1: you know, I guess fun things could be uh, you just mentioned the finish line, so. Um we're the only probably the only race on the planet that paint a finish line on the road the day after the race. Um, you might say, well why do you do that? Well, we lay down a 3m adhesive um, material as the official finish line, and then once the race is over, we go and rip that up and because we've got to get it off the road to let vehicular traffic flow again the next day. but um, the finish line of the Boston Marathon is such a iconic historical landmark, if you will. Um, even the Duffo tour boats when they come down Boylston Street they point out this is the finish line of the Boston Marathon, everyone finishes, right? You wanna make sure that the finish line is preserved so they get out there with their stencils and they paint the line so that it's down there permanently for the entire year until the next year's race. So it's pretty cool that so many people want to have their picture taken right there, you know at the finish line. you know there's a lot of other things you know the Boston Marathon, what people don't know is um how little of the Boston Marathon is actually in Boston. If You would ask people they may guess, but it's only one tenth of the entire race is in Boston. it's two point six miles of the Boston Marathon is in Boston, yeah anyways, um you know all the the facts that you know you got the best runners in the world and Jeffrey Mutai running world best in two thousand and eleven at two oh three oh two even though it wasn't recognized as the world record because our course is not world record eligible because of its downhill nature and the fact that it's a point to point. So it could be win aided. So no matter what performances occur on our course, they're not gonna be recognized unfortunately as far as being world or American records, which is obviously frustrating, <laughs> you know, the governing have any body, uh, the IAAF, they have their standards and their policies, and, you know, that's just the way it is, so, so there's a lot of, you know, if you look at the start of Boston, uh starting line is, well, the New York City Marathon has the Verrazano Bridge, so you get like 17 lanes on the Verrazano Bridge to start their race, and In, in Boston, our race starts in small town of Hopkinton and starting line is 39 feet wide. We've got 39 feet to get 30,000 people across.
0: Yeah, that was interesting for me at being at the starting line. It's like, really? This, yeah, I didn't know is it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like someone's driveway. Um, but again, um, what people have to have an appreciation for is, you know, this race started 121 years ago and we have no more real estate to work with than they had 120 years ago. And they only had what 100 people in the race, and we have 30,000. And again, we have no more space today than they had. So it, it can be very complex. I mean, there's not a lo- lot of room for error. We have to be on our on our game. You know, we have to be sure that everything is going to work meticulously. Our uh, one little mistake, and the domino effect comes into play, and the whole thing can sort of come apart. at the themes. knock on wood, that hasn't happened in my you know in the last 30 years. I haven't seen any major disasters. I mean, obviously. 2013 was, was a pretty bad year, but Mother Nature can wreak havoc on us too. In 2007, we had a nor'easter come through and we were, weren't sure whether we were going to go or no go. In 2012, it was a hot year, like 90 degrees. Do we go? No, no go. I always say that if you don't fire the starter's gun, um, no one gets hurt. So it's a tough decision to make whether you send people into harm's way if uh, if you think you're right on the edge on the bubble of that. But if you but if you cancel it, a they're not going to be happy, and b most likely they're going to get out and running anyway, but no support. So it's a conundrum for sure. Um, but lucky for us, we've been able to you know start our races every year. So
0: Dave, uh, it it was really great talking to you today. Okay. Learn learn a lot about Boston Boston Marathon and and what goes into making a Boston, the Boston Marathon that that it is. Uh, I would like you to uh, give a word of advice. You have experience running, being a part of Boston for the last 45 years or so. Uh, give us a word of advice to those beginner runners, veterans runners who had who has a dream. I always, always tell people that you should always have a dream of running Boston, whether you can or cannot. But can you give a word of advice to those people to one day line up at your race at the Boston Marathon?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you've, if you've made it here, um, I think I think the
0: idea is to um,
1: take in the experience. You know, you work really hard, qualify to get here. I look at Boston as more of a it's your reward. Um, And a lot of times people come here to run really hard and really fast and they end up crashing, burning, and they have maybe a lousy running experience. And um, I would say if you are able to run Boston multiple times, then maybe in the second, third, or fourth attempt, you can. You've got it down. You know what the course is like. Uh, You train properly for this course, not just for a marathon, but for this course, and you can go out and and try to, you know, hammer the course. But I think if you're doing it for the very first time, my advice would be to um, back off, enjoy it, you know, take it all in, uh, work with the crowd, experience the, you know, the iconic locations you're running by. cross the finish line in good spirits, soak in the moment, and then vow to come back again um, either next year or sometime in the near future to sort of um, maybe uh, run it a little bit more competitively. Um, I think to run Boston, I think you have to be patient. Um, the beginning part is a lot of it's downhill. People go out too fast, and then they uh, they get in trouble, and then it's just not a lot of fun to do the survivor shuffle for the last six miles. So um, by being patient, holding back, Enjoying the experience. That would be my, at least my
0: advice. That's a great word of advice, and uh, thanks for talking to us. And uh, sure thing. And hope to see you at uh, at Boston somewhere. I'm sure you'll be busy. Okay. Uh, uh, in in April, so it's coming up fast, and I need to train. Yeah. so Thank you. I'll be there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Emruns Podcast. Please subscribe to Emruns Podcast channel Voice of Runners. Also. Follow MRuns.com's social media handle, Marathon Runs, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for recent updates, photos, and more.